Welcome to Star Trek Age of Discovery. I'm Adele Austin Anderson. And I'm Gary Anderson. And we're a married couple who are longtime fans of Star Trek. This week, we continue our examination of our favorite episodes, season by season, from our favorite Star Trek series, Deep Space Nine. After our review, we will end our podcast with the latest Star Trek news. If we got any. Uh huh. <laughs> so, Gary, let's begin with the synopsis of our season three honorable mention picks, Improbable Cause, and The Dias Cast. Sure. After having lunch with Garrick, Dr. Bashir is heading back to the infirmary when Major Kira Norris stops him to discuss accommodations for an ambassador. Their conversation is disrupted by an explosion that seems to come from Garrick's tailor shop. Bashir finds the Cardassian injured amidst the debris. As the chief security officer, Odo questions Garrick in the infirmary. However, Garrick plays coy with Odo, questioning why anyone would want to kill a simple tailor. <laughs> Odo does not take Garrick's replies seriously, knowing he had been a member of the Obsidian Order, the secret Cardassian intelligence agency. Odo continues his investigation, suspecting a Flaxian merchant as being the assassin, since the bomb used in the murder attempt was a type known to be employed by members of his species. Odo reluctantly allows Garrick to join him in a runabout when the Flaxian leaves DS9 in his ship. However, the Flaxian does not get very far before his ship explodes. Back on DS9, Odo receives information that seems to indicate the Romulans were behind the killing of the Flaxian. When the Commander Sisko and Odo contact the Romulans about the matter, they openly admit to doing so since they say he was guilty of crimes against the Romulan Empire. Since the confession is so glibly provided, <laughs> Sisko and Odo suspect more complex layers to this mystery. Odo travels to a cavern in a barren moon to meet with a Cardassian who owes him a favor. The Cardassian reveals Romulan warbirds have been detected near the Cardassian border, but no one suspects they were there in preparation of an invasion. He also informs Odo five other Obsidian Order members had died recently under mysterious Circumstances. Odo confronts Garrick with the information and asserts the Flaxian did not plant the bomb since it appears the spy had planned to poison him. Odo charges Garrick with setting the bomb himself to bring him into the matter as an investigator. He asks Garrick why the Romulans would want to see him dead. Garrick says he did not know the answer. However, he admits the five Cardassian spies were close associates of Inabran Tain, a former head of the Obsidian Order. Odo and Garrick take a runabout with intent of traveling to a planet where the tailor knows Tain has a safe house. Before they could arrive there, their ship is intercepted by a Romulan warbird. The two are taken to the bridge where they are surprised to find Tain. Tain tells them the Obsidian Order and the Tashiar, the, their Romulan counterpart, had formed an alliance to conduct a first strike attack to destroy the Founder's homeworld, 
of the Dominion Empire. In order to remove the threat, they believe that changelings pose to their own civilizations. Once the plan has been carried out, Tane planned on taking control of the Obsidian Order. He asked Garrick to join him, and without hesitation, he agrees to do so. Now to the die is cast. Back on DS9, Cisco and the crew are concerned with se- when several days have passed with no communication with Odo. They become even more alarmed when they witness a large Cardassian Romulan fleet decloak and fly into the wormhole to the Gamma Quadrant. The crew intercept a communication by Tane exposing the plan to destroy the Founder's homeworld. They relay the plan to Vice Admiral Todman, who says he does not condone it, but orders them not to interfere with it since it may be successful. He tells them to be on full alert as a precaution if the plan fails. Sisko refuses to abandon one of his staff members and asks for volunteers to take the Defiant on an unsanctioned and dangerous mission to rescue Odo, whom himself is a changeling. Without hesitation, the senior staff join their commander. Under Tane's orders to learn more information about the changelings, Garrick interrogates Odo by employing a device that doesn't allow the changeling to return to his gelatinous state. Without doing so, Odo would eventually die. Despite being near death, Odo refuses to give up any critical information except for the confession of his desire to return to the founders. The Cardassian Romulan Armada arrives to what they think is the Founder's homeworld and instead finds the targeted planet is abandoned. Trapped, their forces find themselves under heavy attack by 150 Jemadar fighters whose sole mission in life is to protect the Founders. Knowing the cause is lost, Garrick goes to Odo to free him. Their escape is aided by a changeling who had been impersonating Romulan commander Lovick. The changeling asks Odo if he would like to come with him to rejoin the Great Link, but Odo turns down the offer. Garrick attempts to save Tane, but he refuses to go with him. Odo knocks Garrick out and takes him to the runabout. Their chances for survival are slim, however, just as their fates seem doomed. They are beamed aboard the Defiant, which is then able to make it safely back to the space station. Under the circumstances, Vice Admiral Todman informs Sisko no charges will be made against him and his crew. Later, Odo thanks Garrick for leaving out of the report his confessed desire to return to the Founders. Garrick says there are things that are best left forgotten, and then notes his intention to rebuild his shop since he realized he's actually a good tailor. Odo then suggests the two spend time at breakfast together. Okay, now let's move on to the credits. Improbable Causes was written by Rene Echeverria and directed by series lead Avery Brooks. After gaining experience on the stage, Echeverria wrote a spec script for Star Trek Next Generation called The Offspring. He was hired on the writing staff and became a story editor for the show's sixth season and executive story editor during its seventh and final season. 
for which the show received an Emmy nomination for Best Dramatic Series. In 1993, he took the job as co-supervising producer on Deep Space Nine. As our listeners will recall, Echeverria co-wrote the DS9 Season 3 pick, Past Tense Part 2. His 30-plus episodes of Star Trek have won him a Humanitas nomination, a Peabody nomination, two Hugo nominations, and a NASA Visions Award for Best Depiction of Humanity's Future in Space. In 1994, he received a Special Achievement Award from the Latino media organization Hamas. A.V. Brooks is well known to Star Trek fans in his role as Commander and later Captain Benjamin Sisko on DS9. For DS9, he directed nine episodes, including Far Beyond the Stars, rated as one of the best episodes of the franchise. Brooks first made a name for himself as an acclaimed stage actor noted for his one-man show, Paul Robeson, which Gary and I actually saw. Yeah, he was phenomenal. On television, besides the role of Cisco, he is well known for the role of Hawk which he first performed in the series Spencer for Hire. In 1989, the character was featured in his own, albeit short-lived, spinoff series, A Man Called Hawk. In landing the title role, Brooks became only the fourth African-American male actor in a starring role in a first-run television drama. An MFA graduate of Rutgers University, he later taught at several colleges before becoming a tenured professor at the university's Mason Gross School of the Arts. The Die of His Cast was written by Ronald D. Moore and directed by David Livingston. Moore is a prolific screenwriter and producer known for his work on such series as the reboot of Battlestar Galactica and most recently as executive producer on shows such as for All Mankind, and Outlander. Moore was an important figure in the, the development of the Star Trek universe. According to IMDb, his first script, The Bonding, led to an assignment and a spot on the Next Generation writing staff in 1989. By the end of the series, he was serving as a producer. In addition, the final season of TNG saw numerous accolades come Mr. Moore's way. As a member of the production team, he earned an Emmy nomination for Outstanding Drama Series and along with writing partner Brandon Braga, a Hugo Award for the Best Dramatic Presentation for the episode All Good Things, the series finale. They would go on to earn Hugo nominations for the first two TNG films, Star Trek Generations, and Star Trek First Contact. Following The Next Generation, Mr. Moore assumed the role of supervising producer on DS9. He began by writing the third season premiere, The Search Parts 1, which saw the introduction of the USS Defiant. And by the time DS9 ended, he was a co-executive producer and had written 30 episodes for the series. He moved on to his next Star Trek series, Voyager. However, after a two-episode stint as co-executive producer, Moore decided to leave the franchise entirely. Mm. Mm. <laughs> mm. 
<laughs> All right. So David Livingston is a television producer and director best known for his work in the Star Trek franchise. Livingston began his tenure with Star Trek as a unit production manager on The Next Generation in 1988 before moving up the ranks to become a supervising producer in 1992. He later served as a supervising producer on Deep Space Nine and Voyager. He has directorial credits on two Next Generation episodes, 17 Deep Space Nine episodes, 28 Voyager episodes, and 14 Enterprise episodes for a total of 62 episodes, more than any other person for the franchise. In 1994, Livingston was nominated along with the rest of the series production staff for an Emmy for Outstanding Dramatic Series for the Next Generation. Now, before we get into our analysis of the, of the episodes, we want to take a moment to talk about the importance of season three. Season three is a critical area for, um, shift from the two previous seasons, and we want to explain why. As we said in the last episode, season three was an important transitional season for the show, besides the fact that the season three gave us the USS Defiant and brought both Renee Echeverria and Ronald D. Moore into what they called the core writing staff for Deep Space Nine. The most appealing aspects of the final four seasons of the show evolved naturally from the plot and character developments that this season showcased. All of them were on display in these two episodes, Improbable Causes and The Dias Cast. Whether it was more complex character development, courageous storytelling arcs, or the show's organizational structure itself, Deep Space Nine became a unique, risk-taking series that created the model for serialized storytelling that we see on television today. So now let's look at the structure. Sure. Leadership and organizational style would change by the end of the season. Michael Pillar, who was Deep Space Nine's co-creator and main showrunner from the beginning of the series, departed the series halfway through season three to oversee development of Star Trek Voyager. He had co-created Voyager and became its co-showrunner. Pillar transferred more responsibility over the day-to-day -day operations of Deep Space Nine to Iris Stephen Bear as the season progressed. Bear had been on board Deep Space Nine since the beginning in various leadership roles, but unlike Pillar, he wasn't as indoctrinated into a standardized Star Trek storytelling format. Having a leader of the series who was not enamored with the next generation style of storytelling meant that he was open to taking risks. Bear brought on writers who immediately began to embrace this liberated approach. This is why season three has a somewhat dual personality. This was a critical change that set the course for the remainder of the show. Now let's talk a little bit about that serialization. So secondly, the writing became more serialized than it had been previously, although season two began with a three-part story and was not intended 
to set any kind of pattern. In fact, the studios were really apprehensive about them doing such multi-part story arcs. The opinion of Rick Berman and the Paramount Studio executives was that serialization killed audience development and traditional syndication rebroadcasting strategies. Also, episodes could be preempted for, for local programming or shown out of order. Fans could easily lose the thread of a story arc if they didn't see all parts at the same time. However, Ignoring that reality, season three features three two-part story arcs. The season opener, which with is uh, the search where Cisco travels into the Gamma Quadrant in search of the founders. Past tense, part one and two, which we talked about in our previous episode. And our two honorable mention episodes, Improbable Cause and The Die is Cast. Okay, so there's also a big change in the uh, character of Cisco as portrayed by Avery Brooks. So the third season marked a significant shift in the presence of Benjamin Cisco on the show. Over the first two seasons, Cisco appeared in many episodes without actually playing a significant role in the stories. He had to endure being punched by Q briefly losing his station during a Bajoran military coup and being shoved in a sweat box by an anti-technology zealot. Better written episodes featured Kira, Odo, or O'Brien. Mm -hmm. In season three, Brooke's performance increased in emotional intensity as well. Cisco became more openly affectionate towards his son Jake, as well as playing more assertive, intense scenes. The role became more complex and built on Brooks' theater training. At the top of season three, Cisco was given his own ship to command, the Defiant. He journeyed into the mirror universe and convincingly portrayed a morally corrupt version of himself as well as traveled back in time. By the end of season, Cisco began sporting a goatee, which is featured in The Explorers. Um, the grooming style Brooks preferred. Bear had been fighting for this change since the beginning of the series, since living with a bald head and a goatee was the way Brooks was most comfortable in life. According to the interviews in the DS9 documentary, Rick Berman and the Paramount executives were worried that such a look could signal something street about Cisco. Street. Now by street, you know, that's kind of cold. <laughs> yes. They met an angry black man. Berman and studio executives were concerned that Brooks would alienate a portion of the, let's face it, the white audience by being seen as menacing. This fear was legitimate since American popular entertainment had traditionally reinforced the image of an aggressive black man as someone to fear since the early 19th century. Now this is ironic because... What other black man had a, a goatee in a Star Trek series? Worf. Right, right. But the whole thing that they found to justify why that was okay and Avery Brooks was not was because Michael Dorn was playing a Klingon. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Most ridiculous argument that you could ever put on this on out. Anyway. Even though there was studio opposition, the goatee eventually appeared in episode 22 of season three, 
the Explorers, and continued through the end of the series. Cisco's shaved head would soon follow at the beginning of season four in its first episode. These changes in appearance signaled Benjamin Cisco's emergence as something more than a token black character. His emotional range became richer and more layered. Also, he could show the similar range of emotions that had always been afforded to actors William Shatner and Patrick Stewart on both their shows and their films that had been denied him the first two seasons. Thankfully, Cisco became your non-traditional Star Trek lead character. So now let's look at the reception. Finally, it was during season three when the cast and crew of DS9 came to the to the conclusion they were fated to be the middle child of Star Trek. Again, in interviews from the DS9 documentary, the staff understood that DS9 was not as beloved by many fans at the time or the studio as The Next Generation was. This meant everyone on the production had to satisfy themselves with the notion their good work would be recognized, uh, maybe eventually. (laughs) (laughs) Additionally, Deep Space Nine was the only Star Trek series during the Berman era that shared the stage with a companion series for the majority of its original run. The show ran along with The Next Generation for the first two seasons and with Voyager for its last five seasons. Deep Space Nine only aired 14 episodes from June of 1994 through the middle of January 1995 when it was the sole Star Trek series on TV. Also, The Next Generation and Deep Space Nine were syndicated Paramount series. They worked under different rules than Voyager, which was a primetime series on the upstart UPN network. The Next Generation and Deep Space Nine were seen on local affiliate stations in need of programming to attract audience and add revenue. The affiliate stations weren't obligated to broadcast at a regular time period every week. If a show's ratings fell, the affiliate station manager would move it around on the schedule until it found a time slot that worked or not. Unfortunately, Deep Space Nine's ratings didn't improve in spite of the overall quality of the show, specifically the acting and writing. They were destined to be constantly compared to the other two Star Trek shows running at that time. This is why we think taking additional time to look at season three with a broader perspective of what was happening in and around the series is important in understanding how and why Deep Space Nine developed as it did. All right, so now let's do our reviews of these two honorable mentions from season three. The theme of Improbable Cause and the Die is Cast is Isolation. The story they tell together divulges the secret attack plot two major powers of the Alpha and Beta Quadrants have devised in response to the growing threat the Dominion poses. However, underneath is the real story of hidden desires to return home. Garrick, Odo, and even Inabrintain are seeking to return to their rightful places. For Garrick and Odo, two lonely orphaned aliens, 
they both long to return home to their people. Tain, on the other hand, is attempting to regain the power and status he had as head of the Obsidian Order. All right, so here's the analysis. Improbable cause in the diet is cast comprised the third two-part story in season three. This is a perfect example of how showrunner Ira Stephen Bear fully adopted serialization against studio opposition. The events that transpire in these episodes build on what had happened in the season three two-part season opener, The Search. Cisco and his crew ventured into the Gamma Quadrant in search of the Founders. It was revealed then that the Founders' omnipotent rulers of the Dominion were Odo's people, the Changelings. When Odo was offered a chance to return to the Great Link, he turned it down due to Dominion's intent to take over the Alpha Quadrant. The story that unfolds over these two episodes also builds upon character development of both Odo and Garrick from our season two picks. In Necessary Evil, we were introduced to Odo's powers of investigation. Those talents are on display again in Improbable Cause. When Garrick's shop mysteriously explodes, Odo investigates to determine who tried to kill the Cardassian exile and why. His investigation leads to the discovery of a secret Cardassian Romulan plot against the Dominion. Also from The Wire, our honorable mention for season two, we learned that Garrick had been an agent of the Obsidian Order. In fact, he was once the trusted advisor of its leader, Inab Brintain. In the season three episodes, Garrick rejoins his former mentor in his plan to launch a surprise strike assault on the Founder's homeworld. To please Tane, Garrick tortures Odo in an attempt to uncover new information about the Founders that could be useful to the Cardassian Romulan fleet as they enter the Gamma Quadrant heading for the Omarian Nebula. So now let's take a closer look at Odo and Garrick. Some critics have called this two-part story Garrick-centric because of everything he could gain from supporting Tane's plan. But what is ignored and what makes this story truly great is how the focus is equally on Odo as well. Both Odo and Garrick are hiding their true feelings of isolation from everyone around them. Both Odo and Garrick wish to return their people to their people despite their respective divisions. Finally, both Odo and Garrick are silent observers of the lives others are living. They shield their own emotional vulnerability behind walls. Odo builds a wall from smugness, snarkiness, and aloofness. Garrick uses falsehoods and distractions for his wall. Both of them are also accustomed to giving off an air of assumed indifference. That's true. In fact, Odo and Garrick are dramatic foils for one another. In this story, they serve as a mirror for each to best see their own reflection. The bonds they share thematically increase over the course of the two episodes. Each is an isolated alien who refuses to let others see their weakness. We see and hear how each of them describes how alone the other one is. 
we see how desperate they are to return to their homes, a goal that by the episode's end seems impossible for either of them to achieve. Eric has given Beck everything he's lost, but it's like an old suit of clothes that no longer fits. He doesn't have the stomach for torture anymore. Also, Tane's offer is a stable is as stable as a sandcastle at high tide. As quickly as it's given, it's washed away. In the wake of returning to his destroyed shop, Garrick delivers the most poignant line of the story. You know what the sad part is, Odo? <laughs> I'm a very good tailor. As for Odo, for the first time, he openly admits to someone his innermost desires and agonies. He wants to join in the Great Link more than anything, but he knows he can't. He once again refuses the offer when it is extended the opportunity by the changeling impersonating Romulan Commander Lovick, the only person who would know if he had said yes to the proposition was Garrick. The Cardassian witnessed the longing and desperation in Odo's voice when forced to confess how badly he wanted to be joined with the other changelings in the Great Link. Also, Garrick is the one person who actually understands that particular heart's desire. Tane entices Garrick with the one thing he desires most, Tane's acceptance. Garrick believes the success of this attack on the Founders will end his exile and return him to favor among the Obsidian Order. His loyalty to Tane is more than mentor to mentee. For Garrick, it's in his willingness to secure Tane's approval at all costs. This incident provides them with a shared experience of vulnerability and loss. That experience created a connection that is silently acknowledged by both men in the final moment of the Dias cast. I just read the report that you wrote, and I wanted to thank you. Me? For what? For not mentioning my desire to return to my people. I consider the entire conversation as something best forgotten. As do I. Quark has expressed an interest in renting this space if you're not going to be using it. Huh? He mentioned something about an Argelian massage facility. Well, unfortunately, I don't think Commander Sisko would approve of such an interesting facility on the promenade. I tend to agree. But I do think he would approve of a tailor's shop. Do you know what the sad part is, Odo? I'm a very good tailor. Garrick, I was thinking that you and I should have breakfast together sometime. Why, a constable. I thought you didn't eat. I don't. So here's our final thoughts on these episodes. Improbable Cause and the Dias Cast are both bookends to the escalation in the tensions with the Dominion that began with the search in 
at the beginning of season three. In these episodes, the founders reveal the tactics that we will see them use again. As with the Romulan commander Lovick, the founders will disguise themselves as other high-ranking humanoids to spy on the Alpha Quadrant. General Martok, Dr. Bashir, and Admiral Layton will become the most consequential victims of the Changeling's impersonations. Also, the founders want Odo to join them in the Great Link. Once again, he declines, but their seduction of him will continue. For the remainder of the series, the table is largely set by this two-part story. Improbable Cause and the Dias cast advance the narrative in significant ways for seasons four through seven. After two seasons of teasing us with the danger of the, the Dominion in the abstract, the threat that they actually pose finally has some teeth. Major consequences will result from both the Cardassian and Romulan fleet seeking to commit genocide against their people. The crucial outcome resulting from the failed espionage plan is how the Dominion effectively wipes out the Obsidian Order and the Tal Shiar in one blow. This has long-term consequences, which will be seen first in the Season 4 two-part opener, The Way of the Warrior. As the Changeling masquerading as Lovick says, it also leaves the Federation and Klingons in a weakened state. This will play into the fall of the Cardassian Union to the Klingons, as well as the Romulans' acceptance of an alliance with the Federation. But uh, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Writers Rene Echeverria and Ronald D. Moore, two of Deep Space Nine main architects, along with, writer, with directors Avery Brooks and David Livingston, raised the stakes considerably for Star Trek in total. For Deep Space Nine, these episodes set a new standard for action as well as writing. In fact, the battle scene, the space battle scene in this episode, is by far the most complex and most dynamic of the series to this date. All right. So, now we're going to turn to Star Trek News. Star Trek News! And this all has to do with Prodigy. Okay. Prodigy co-creators and showrunners Dan and Kevin Hageman are happy that their show was saved with seasons one and two set to arrive on Netflix, but they don't want to stop there. In fact, they are already envisioning season three and beyond. If Netflix orders another season after this year, Dan claims they are ready to go, as he told Cinema Blend. There is no definitive end. Are we making season three? No, but we can make season three. Yes. I think a lot of this has to do with what type of appetite there is for Prodigy. Kevin reveals that not only are they ready for a third season, but in a style of Star Trek shows from the 1990s, a full seven seasons of Prodigy have been planned. Kevin told Samantha Cooley of Collider, There's threads of what's next. Um, um, if we're lucky enough to go on to season three, I'm really excited about where the show can go. We wrote this thing to go seven seasons at least. If Prodigy were to go seven seasons, it would be the first 
Trek show to do so since Star Trek Voyager. And were it to run longer, it would become a Star Trek milestone. The decision to order more seasons will fall on Netflix and will likely be determined by the number of subscribers that stream the show. However, from all indications, it's off to a good start. Well, that's good. Thank God. I hope that Netflix is a good fit for the show because I really want to see it. Um, last week on Christmas Day, Star Trek Prodigy was once again available on a streaming platform for the first time since it had been removed from Paramount+. Plus. According to TrekMovie.com, after just the first day, it popped up to into the list of top 10 kid TV shows in the USA at number nine. As of today, it has climbed to number six. Wow. Prodigy is one of only two recently added shows in the top 10. Launching on the biggest streaming service in the world gives Prodigy a chance to find a new audience. The series was designed from the outset to appeal to younger audiences not familiar with the franchise. Elements of Trek lore were introduced gradually over the first season, making it more welcoming and accessible for new fans. But we want to say again that even if you don't have a child, like we don't have any young children, no. we truly, truly enjoy Prodigy. Right, right. The success of the relaunch is not just in the U.S., Netflix is streaming Prodigy across the globe, except for Canada, where it is already available via CTV and the CDV app and the Sky Showtime countries in Europe. Netflix has a larger global reach than Paramount Plus, so in many markets, viewers are getting it their first chance to see Prodigy. Just like the USA, the show is moving up the ranks globally. Today, it moved from number nine to number six in the UK and from five to one in Germany. It's also jumped to the to the top 10 list in Australia, Italy and France. That's great. Oh, man, this is fantastic. Great news. So the second season of Prodigy was completed earlier this month. Netflix will release season two in 2024. But they have not yet announced when or if they will be splitting up the season of 20 episodes. We'll be back in two weeks with our thoughts on our season four pick, The Visitor. A beautiful story of a son's love for his father that shapes his life's mission. The Visitor is another episode directed by David Livingston, by, oh, the, by the way. All right. But before we sign off, we would like to remind you to share a link to Age of Discovery with people you know who enjoy Star Trek as well. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave a comment over on iTunes for us. It can help us out with attracting attention and new listeners. Until that time. Like, subscribe, and follow Star Trek Age of Discovery on X, Threads, and Instagram at Star Trek AOD at Facebook at our page, which is facebook.com slash Star Trek AOD at our website, which is Star Trek AOD.net, where we offer additional articles on Star Trek canon, interesting sidebar issues and other aspects of the show. Also, you can email us at Star Trek AOD at gmail.com. But until then, live long and prosper.